You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Ikaika Anderson has withdrawn his name for consideration as director of the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. It comes after a grueling five-hour committee confirmation hearing and a four-to-one vote not to confirm him. Rather than face a Senate floor showdown, Anderson pulled his name from consideration. HBR's Ku'uvehi Hiraishi here to talk about that. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So everyone got the news at a press conference yesterday, Wednesday afternoon, uh, that uh, Ikaika Anderson would be pulling his name from consideration. And you know that no vote from the Senate Hawaiian Affairs Committee that came Tuesday, I think, carried significant weight in influencing the full Senate vote. And this is something we've seen with past chair confirmations for the department, the Senate Hawaiian Affairs Committee, really the um, sort of topic experts when it comes to finding someone for DHHL. And so the no vote, uh, I think, had a mark on what would ultimately uh, lead to his resign, or not resignation, but his his withdrawal. But at yesterday's confirm, uh, at yesterday's uh, here uh, press conference, Governor Green, you know, uh, I think he said he respected the decision, but kind of uh, spoke of uh, the committee playing politics with this particular no vote. Uh, Kaika carried himself uh, with great pride and courage. Uh, into what can be a difficult um, environment. I would say this, when you see that many individuals come forward to support a gentleman like Akaika Anderson, you do have to ask yourself why they ultimately wouldn't pass him on for confirmation. Uh, I, I won't second guess the, the, the committee. I will just say this, we were all sent here to do a job, to help people. In this case, it was to help build houses for the Hawaiian community, and I can't think of anybody who was better poised to do that, who simply wanted to help out. Going forward, I would hope that we keep that as our priority and we not allow politics to mix into our opinions. So I also sat through Tuesday's five-hour hearing where Senators grilled Anderson on his plan for spending the $600 million that was appropriated to DHHL by legislators last year. And, you know, Anderson repeatedly said he's working on it. He wants to build on the existing plan uh, approved by the Hawaiian Homes Commission in December. But he, I think that would have been his third legislative hearing on DHHL's plans for the money. And so uh, the department has a deadline for spending some of that by the end of this fiscal year. And I think lawmakers were expecting a more definitive plan or a greater detail at this hearing, um, but I don't think that was what they heard. But when we asked Anderson yesterday what he sort of took away from that hearing, he said he felt like he didn't have enough time to earn the trust and respect of the Native Hawaiian community. My kupuna, particularly my grandfather, uh, taught me a long time ago that respect and trust aren't given, both are earned. And I didn't have the time to earn the respect and the trust of so many of our beneficiaries. What I will take away from this is hopefully in whatever opportunities there may be for me to serve in the future, that I'll be able to build more relationships in the Hawaiian community, earn their trust, and earn their respect so that we do have the opportunity to serve them and to provide for our communities going forward. And so uh, he will remain on, Anderson will remain uh, the uh, acting director of DHHL until a suitable replacement can be found and um, going through that Senate confirmation here uh, process again. Um, and I remember, if I recall right, for uh, William Ila, the previous uh, chair at the department, uh, he stayed on for about several months as the interim before getting that Senate confirmation. So whether or not he's going to stay on through the rest of uh, you know the next couple of months or maybe transition into another position within the Green administration. Uh, that's something we're going to look forward to. So I think the question now is, who else is going to jump up for this uh, to fill this role? I know right. in the past, some of the applicants for this position have been a former deputy director, Tyler Iokepa Gomes. Not sure if uh, he wants to take up this uh, process right now, but I know in terms of transition and with that $600 million on the line, uh, that'd be the obvious choice in terms of continuity. Uh, also, a Pana Eva homesteader, Maile Uvai, who is currently working in the uh, Mayor Blanjardi's 
administration, had applied for uh, the position of former um, or current policy advisor for Josh Green, Governor Josh Green. Robin Danner had her name in the hat early on as well. And uh, Kamala Olana Mills, a current uh, Kamala Schools Land Assets uh, manager and former employee at the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, I know has also uh, had his hat in the ring as well. Right. So, again, yeah, the question is, will they want to subject themselves to a, <laughs> a brutal hearing? Uh, you know, because I think with Isla, he went through a... Kind he went through seven, seven hours, hours in yeah. that first Senate Hawaiian Affairs Committee meeting, so or hearing, and so, and that was before going to the full Senate for a vote. So it and can so be brutal. It can <laughs> be brutal, and I think for the Hawaiian Senate Hawaiian Affairs Committee in particular, you know, they they've come to know what the department does and what's on the line with the six hundred million dollars. So they're really looking for someone with that institutional knowledge uh, to hit the ground running, and uh, I think that's what uh, beneficiaries and and folks at the department are really uh, hoping for at this point. Right. And, uh, you know, Isla stuck it out. You know, he was <laughs> named and, and served as a, a DHHL director. Um, it was controversial, but, you know, he... he went through it, but exactly. Ikaika obviously made a different decision. Right, and I think for Ayla, too, there was a lot, a lot of opposition, and you're going to have to expect that going through these meetings and going through these hearings, but we shall see who is up for the job next. All right, okay, thank you so much, Kuvehi. That was HPR reporter Kuvehi Rishi talking about the withdrawal of Ikaika Anderson from consideration as director of the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Look for the story on this issue at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reality Check today with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Uh, Give us an update on a topic that we featured here on the conversation before. Reporter Thomas Heaton joins us today to talk about Fukushima, Japan. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning. So uh, what is the latest? I mean, we've all been hearing about how Japan wanted to start dumping some of that wastewater from the nuclear plant, but what's what's the deal? So it was all scheduled to happen early this year after the, it was announced that the uh, wastewater would be released into the Pacific uh, in 2021. Um, but there has been a delay and it appears to be indefinite and that, that is according to um, members and delegates from the Pacific Islands Forum, an intergovernmental agency um, based out of Fiji. So there is some cause for hope, it appears. Okay, so it it's delayed. We don't know when. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. We don't know when. So um, from the politicians, we're hearing it's delayed, and we think it, we'll, we'll wait until Pacific nations are happy and satisfied that it's a safe thing to do. Um, and then actually from the Tokyo Electric Power Co., uh, who ran the uh, nuclear power plant and are in charge of cleaning up the mess, um, they have stated that they might actually just be delaying it until later this year. So there is a little bit of disconnect there, um, but it appears that uh, the Pacific leaders, um, as part of the island forum, um, are hopeful that uh, this delay will will only be a delay until every other kind of alternative is explored. Um, so as a bit of background, what's um, the Pacific Islands Forum raised alarm bells about this as soon as it was really announced. Uh, they, they had many concerns given the history of dumping of um, waste in the Pacific and nuclear testing in the Pacific. And, of course, those memories hold strong. So they were really concerned. They employed a, well, they assembled a um, panel of advisors, uh, scientific experts in oceanography, radiation, international studies, non-proliferation. Um, and that uh, scientific panel assessed all of the data, and they said, hey, there are holes here. 
uh, we don't believe that you've sincerely explored every other option or exhausted every other potential option um, and we need to do something about this. So, yeah, I mean, they, um, they essentially said not so fast. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and and there is a, uh, a, a professor here uh, 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 from Hawaii that is on that panel. Yes, yes. Uh, Dr. Robert Richmond um, of the uh, UH University of Hawaii um, Koala Marine Laboratory. So he brings a biological uh, and a marine biological kind of expertise to this panel. Um, and he's, he's raised alarms over, um, alarm bells over the potential for one radioactive uh, uh, compound, tritium, um, being ad- adopted into the um, food system and in th- into the food web. Um, and that 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 concern still remains to to now, uh, even after he went and visited Japan last last week with a delegation of um, Pacific Islands foreign uh, representatives and other scientific panel experts. Yeah, we had talked to him. I think after he had just been named to that panel, and so it was really interesting uh, to read in your story, you know, about the the, the latest. Uh, and you also reached out and talked to other folks across the Pacific too. Yes, yes. So I spoke to uh, a few people. Um, Sheila Babauta, a former House representative from the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana Islands, um, I, I spoke with her. She actually introduced a resolution in 2021 um, opposing effectively the this whole process. Um, the memory of nuclear waste and dumping in the Pacific is still fresh uh, in in the Mariana Islands, for example, it was only in 1979 that Japan attempted to dump thousands of um, drums of nuclear waste into the Marianas Trench. So they are buoyed by the delay. They hope that they can rally together, educate each other, get everyone on board and kind of really oppose this and make sure that uh, this doesn't happen because the Pacific is very fragile and um, Pacific people really rely on it as do Hawaiians so uh, people in Hawaii so you know it's a it's a very touchy issue and one that I think um, will be interesting to track as we move forward yeah all right well uh, at least we know it's not happening uh, right away and, and we've got a little bit of time be interesting to watch but thank you so much Thomas absolutely thank you Catherine That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. Uh, To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we thought about the way a single invention can revolutionize an industry and at the same time bring un, uh, pre- uh, predict- predictable consequences. We might think of how Eli Whitney's cotton gin revolutionized the textile industry. It made cotton into a profitable export, yet in the process extended slavery for another 70 years. Here in Hawaii, the invention impacted our pineapple industry. This armor-plated, uh, the armor-plated fruit is notoriously difficult to core and slice. So in the early days, the job was done by hand. A single operator could cut up 15 to 10 to 15 per minute, and even that took considerable skill. This pace drove up the cost of production, uh, making canned pineapple a costly luxury item. 
Then, in 1911, James Dole asked a local inventor to create a machine to speed up the process. He did, and the machine that bears his name uh, brought costs down and sent productivity through the roof. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of the inventor and his machine? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. Not one, but three eateries with Hawaii ties were in the top five of Yelp's list of top 100 places to eat in the U.S. this year. At number one, a restaurant named Broken Mouth in Los Angeles. It's owned by Tim Lee. Lee grew up in Kaimuki and graduated from Marinol. His family owns and operates Sorbal Korean Restaurant, which is in a new location at the Pagoda Hotel, uh, just by our studios here. The Conversations Russell Subiono talked with Lee about how he was able to find success serving local food on the continent. How has the national exposure impacted your business so far? Oh, it's been uh, it's been incredible. You know, something like this, I, I never, you know, ever thought and fathomed that placing Hawaii on the map and, you know, Korean Hawaiian style foods, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. But, you know, our business definitely has grown from the release of the article. Yeah, we're doing pretty much double our sales. So it's insane. Wow. Yeah. And I, I saw that you were on the Kelly Clarkson's show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and, and it, was, uh, it, was pr- it was pretty entertaining, too. What food did you bring that she really liked? The Kelly Clarkson show, I mean, it, it was a recorded event. We had planned it out a little bit. Kelly did have some dietary restrictions, so we couldn't really showcase the whole menu. So we decided to just pick one. And of course, since I'm Korean, born and raised in Hawaii, I decided to go with the meat john. Yeah. So, of course, I, and, and meat john is really scarce and hard to find. And I still can't find it really anywhere, even since I started my restaurant. But I wanted to showcase something that was more truly you know where i'm from my background and you know being from hawaii being a hawaii a korean raised in hawaii yeah <laughs> yeah that, that was my wife's gateway to korean food as well was meat jun it was kind of hard to to sell her on it until i guess a, a co-worker brought it to the office one day and then after that she yeah. was she was game yeah she was she yeah, wanted to yeah, eat more yeah. korean always, food yeah yeah meat jun's one of those things even you know, out here, you know, when I first started the store, I mean, I, I Meechum was the first thing that I knew that was going to be, you know, one of my 10 to 15 items that I would choose. And it didn't sell at the beginning, obviously, because, you know, when people see the description of it. And for me, it's it's funny because, you know, growing up in Hawaii, you don't, you don't think about how to explain Meechum to anybody, you know? Right. You just kind of know what it is. But out here, you know, when I read it, when I was thinking about the description, you know, I was like, okay, marinated ribeye, you know, thinly sliced, you know, with an egg batter, you know, and, and it's kind of a... A strange description, but a lot of people were like, "Huh, I don't know if I want beef with egg," you know. And uh, <laughs> so, so it didn't sell that much. But but you know, nowadays, you know, I'm, I I explain it the same way as I did from day one, and and people are jumping on that nowadays. So I'm I'm incredibly happy to show LA a little bit of a small piece of a Hawaii yeah. style foods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome, man. And and I I yeah. love the name of your of your restaurant. The name Broken Mouth, if you grew up in yeah. Hawaii in the 70s and 80s, if you speak pidgin, then you yeah. know it was derived from the expression broke them out. <laughs> I have an inside joke with one of my friends, and whenever we eat something that's really delicious, all we do is just text each other, call the ambulance, and we know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we automatically know that we just ate something, broke them out. Broke Can them you, out. yeah. 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 Can you share the story behind how you picked the name for your restaurant? Was it a process or did you choose it pretty quickly? I mean, yeah, it definitely was a process. I had to think so long and hard about how I can, you know, represent Hawaii culture and and everything and and intertwine, you know, my Korean culture. But essentially, you know, representing the islands. It was a hard one, you know, I mean, I didn't even remember what the other names that I thought about, but there, there was a lot of weird kind of cheesy names that I came up with. But I don't even remember anymore because once I thought about 
thinking like, oh yeah, like Rokutama, like I, used, I mean, I used to talk soul pigeon when I was back home in mm-hmm. Hawaii, you know, I used to, you know, and everything. But I turned it all off because I've been here for like 13, 14 years. But you know, I always was just thinking, you know, like, oh yeah, Rokutama, and then so I was like googling Rokutama, and I seen, you know, a couple of stores in Hawaii, and like, there's that, that one on Big Island that's Rokutama grinds, you know. So I was like, I don't want to like pick the same kind of name as somebody, but I wanted to pick something that kind of maybe like explained my evolution of you know kind of like moving from hawaii to la the menu is definitely has hawaii flavors but but i i have to like you know change it up a little bit just to kind of fit the la cuisine and the whole restaurant scene out here so my first idea was i didn't want to talk pigeon all the time to everybody so i didn't want to have to tell people or how to say book them out you know what i mean all day so i i wanted to like formalize a little bit and that's how i came up with broken mouth making it a little bit more proper English, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and still insinuating, you know, anybody local would still understand that it stems from Broke Them Out. It's definitely your restaurant, right? There's there's no there's no other Broken Mouth. It, and it, it's got to be a source of conversation too, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it always is, you know. I mean, everybody always asks me, you know, what? how did you come up with Broken Mouth? And, like, it's an interesting name because, you know, people out here, you know, live in the mainland, you know, they're not going to really understand what broken mouth means, you know, and it definitely is a nice conversation starter. People always ask me and, you know, I have to bust out some of the page in, but I'd be like, oh yeah, when I'm eating food with, with whoever and, and it's super good, then I'd be like, oh, bro, I broke them out, you know, and I have to bust it out to explain to everybody, but they love it. And, you know, proud to represent pigeon and... <laughs> I took a look at your your menu online, and I saw that yeah. many of your items are rooted in what we in Hawaii, what we call local cuisine. And yes. but you you also have your own kind of twist on it. Are there any local dishes on your menu that you tweaked that you're particularly proud of? So to be upfront, uh, I'm not really well versed in like traditional Hawaiian cuisine, so I didn't want to like go that avenue. But I wanted to represent a different piece of local foods, you know, Hawaiian regional cuisine. You know, everything on my menu essentially is all based off of my taste. So I had to recreate and understand the ingredients that were available out here, and everything was from scratch. I took over maybe like six months about to develop my little small menu. You know, I made batch after batch, and I, I tasted it, and I redid it, you know, and, and kept at that process until I was as satisfied as I, as I could be. You know, I'm not like an expert chef or you know, didn't go to school for it or anything, but just tried to make sure that the flavors were still on point as far as from a local perspective, you know. I just tried to make everything so that I felt that, like, everybody could enjoy, no matter where they're from, just a nice, simple, comforting meal, whether it's exactly like back home or if it does a little spin on it. It's definitely more colorful too, right? You have the the purple yeah. rice and yeah. and you kind of gave a lot of your your dishes kind of your own flavor and your own step. It kind of reminds me of how Hawaii is a melting pot of ethnicities and cultures that has, you know, produced food that is that is unique as well. It made me think that your food kind of kind of is an example of, of how different ethnicities can kind of come together and, and, and create something unique and, and tasty on its own. What do you think that says about the power of food to expose people to different ways of life? You know, I, I love food and I, I love where I come from, you know, being born and raised in Hawaii and, and, you know, being around all the cultures there. It's a huge part of who I am today. And I'm not really trying to create anything different. I just wanted to showcase to the world what Hawaii is all about. You know, coming from Hawaii, being Korean, sharing my food for love and family. And I feel that through all of that, people from everywhere can understand our culture and and what Hawaii people are all about. I think it's a cool thing to, to think about people in L.A. that may be Caucasian or Latino or African-American eating your food that came from Hawaii that's a mixture of of Korean and and a little bit of of other ethnicities. It just seems like such a cool thing that your food kind of brings cultures kind of together in that way. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you know, there's ethnicities from all over the world, you know, in L.A., ethnicities that I'm not as familiar with, you know, but, you know, moving to L.A., it opened my eyes to a lot more things, but I feel that, you know, like, as long as it's like comfort food, everybody can enjoy a piece of that. And that's ultimately what I try to do. And it's not only the food, you know, I mean, everybody knows how to make like really good food and a lot of great restaurants out there. 
and ultimately I try to create an experience for the guests. Not only will they enjoy like the simple company food that I create, but it, it's also about the hospitality and the aloha that you give to everybody. You know, and first time customers come, they become regulars. You know, they essentially become family to me. And I'm out here in LA by myself, yeah. So all my family is in Hawaii still. So kind of doing my own little family out here, you know, yeah. <laughs> through food. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're spreading the aloha spirit and spreading your your love of, of your Korean culture as well. Right on. Thanks so much, Tim. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it, Russell. And that was Tim Lee, chef and owner of Broken Mouth Restaurant in Los Angeles. He was talking to HBR's Russell Subiono about being named Yelp's number one place to eat in the U.S. Lee says his favorite places to eat when he's home are Adela's Country Eatery in Kaneohe, which also made the list, as well as a Tonkatsu Tamafuji in Kapahulu, and of course his family's restaurant, Sorable. Support for HPR comes from Hakuone in Kaka'ako Makai, where OHA plans to create a Hawaiian space in an urban setting, committed to building a neighborhood where all are welcome and where Hawaiian culture thrives. Hakuone.com. HPR's in-person concert in its Mele Hawaii series with Pomaikai is sold out. This intimate performance will be recorded for a later broadcast. For alerts on future concerts at our Atherton studio, sign up for our free newsletter at hawaiipublicradio.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, specializing in residential and commercial building projects. Learn more about services at greenbuildinghawaii.com. February happens to be Hawaiian Language Month. And to mark the event, celebrated local reggae band The Green has launched a special song contest, a translation contest. Uh, contestants must choose a chorus and a verse from their favorite song by the band and then translate it into Olela Hawaii, and then record themselves performing the translation. HBR's Paige Okamura, host of our Hawaiian music show, uh, Hawaii uh, Kula Ivi, talked with the Greens' Brad Watanabe about how the contest encourages more people to learn the Hawaiian language. How did this competition even come about for you folks? It was just one of my ideas to celebrate, you know, this month, Kamahina Olela Hawaii, and we wanted to make something fun for our fans to do, something that everybody could participate in no matter what skill level of Olelo Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just to really put Olelo Hawaii out there. If you're still learning the language, then we still encourage you to enter and translate what you can, even if it's a few words, just a few lines of the, the melee, up into, you know, translating the whole song if you want to. And so you translate what you can, you upload a video of yourself to Instagram, your own Instagram, singing and um, performing the melee, and you tag us, and we'll, we'll choose our favorite entries. And there's some really great prizes too. The grand prize is uh, Kamaka Ukulele. There's gift cards for David Shepherd, Moani Waikiki, as well as gift cards for our own merchandise. There are VIP tickets to our concerts. Wow. Okay, so basically anybody can take a verse or the whole song if they wanted to mm -hmm. or just maybe some lines I guess or you want them to yeah. at least work within a verse we left it pretty open to see what people would come up with you know there aren't really hard rules I mm -hmm. think and that's part of the fun we, we wanted it to be fun for everybody and to get creative and and see what comes out of it so 
What's exciting about this is that, and I think what makes it a little bit more accessible for some of us who are not as fluent yet to be able to create your own original melee is that you're taking a pre-existing song that most of you are probably already familiar with anyway and then asking you to translate it right and that's what we wanted to i think there's so much um it's it's the language is on the rise the number of speakers and people learning the language is on the rise and that's a great thing but there are still a lot of people out there that still are hesitant to learn or want to learn or don't have the time to learn and we hope that this competition will encourage people to get out of their comfort zones a little too and to to learn you know yeah, and make it a learning crack experience. open a dictionary yeah <laughs> use the online one yeah <laughs> well one thing i think and we're gonna get to what i really want to ask you is how is it that the green decided that this is what and i think that has a lot to do with you as Kanaga Ola Lohavai, right? But also uh, to just track back on what you just said, a lot of people always say, I don't have time to learn. I want to learn, mm. but I don't have time. Right. I know that we think that. Like, I think I don't have time to do a lot of things. But the reality is, is it's just in what I prioritize. Totally. Right? You have time to do other things you like to do. Right? And, like, especially in the pandemic, I think about it that way. We all had time to learn how to make kimchi. <laughs> you know, anything fermented because all we had was time. You know, right. we learned how to make kombucha. All these things <laughs> that we had time for. You had a lot of time in there mm. to learn a new language. And so I think when a lot of people tell me, I want to learn, but I don't have time. I don't really actually find that like a valid reason. Mm. Because what you're actually telling me is you just don't want to spend your time there. Right. And to be fair, like finding access and ways to learn, that's, that's, a, different, mm-hmm. that's a different issue. But I think, you know... We make time to go to the gym. We make time to do all kinds of stuff that we want to do. Maybe you yeah. give up going out to dinner because then you'll recoup two hours. Yeah, right? <laughs> you're totally right. It's what you prioritize. And I think the first year that um, when I, I, I feel like I caught the bug where I was like, oh, my God, I want to learn this. And that was my priority for that year. You know, I spent all my mornings reading a chapter and trying to teach myself. And it was I was obsessed with it, really. And I think that was what made me able to move forward and be able to speak fairly quickly. Yeah. And uh, in addition to that, I think what is also needed for you to make space to learn so if you don't just have that obsessive tendency about learning the language then what you have to do is you have to make it applicable to Mm -hmm. your everyday things because then you can be more practical about it like when I'm teaching people I say and depending what they're learning but once they've got basic verb phrases down then I just tell them I know you're going to think you look weird, but every time you do something, I want you to narrate it. Oh, yeah. In a way. <laughs> Are you walking to class? Well, then I, we just learn how to say that. So just say it as you're doing it. Right. Are you, you know getting in the elevator yep and you, are you pressing a button now like all of these things you just have to make it practical and i think sometimes certain methods of language acquisition are not as practical you know for folks and sometimes we do get frustrated because we just want to be able to say yeah, I went to the mall today to find my favorite, you know, pair of slippers from this one brand. And then, okay, that sentence is a little complicated. <laughs> but we have to start somewhere. And speaking of starting somewhere, where did you start on your on your I bought the book um, Kaleha Hell on Amazon. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's that's a lot of people's first. <laughs> and. You know, I got through the first couple chapters and I was doing okay. And then, you know, things got a little difficult. I think maybe around, they teach you hiki, you know, hiki, ya'u. And I was like, why is it ya'u? I was like, oh, I don't get this. And um, right around that time, I really lucked out because I met Ho'o, Ho'o Manavanui Apo. Mm-hmm. And 
what was really funny about that was we met on Molokai at their Ho'omau, which is, you know, for Punanaleo. It's a... It's a big fundraiser. Yeah. Yeah. And I told her I was trying to learn, and she's like, it was difficult, you know, and she was like, um, oh, don't worry, I'll come help you. And she literally, every week we would meet up, and she would help me, and we finished that book in a a few months. And um, so I really owe her a lot. Um, because she really just helped me and got me through that those difficult chapters. Yeah, so she was my first Kumu, and I think since then I I tried to join different classes to meet other speakers, and because that's the thing too is I think making it applicable, like you said, you know, is finding people that speak. And I think now I have so many friends, and we're friends because we speak. That's true, actually. What is very difficult for people, no matter if you're prioritizing it, prioritizing learning Hawaiian, is to find other people to practice with. Mm. And that's that's so key. And so, yes, if you're not in school, if you're not in a Kayapuni class, if you're not at a college class, you don't have anybody to talk to. Right. And so you have to seek them out. And to be honest, Anyone who's already fluent, I do think we have that embedded kuleana to kokua mm. and kako'o, right. right? And so, but it can be very intimidating to just approach someone and be like, can you help me? But you'd, you'd be surprised at how many people are are open to oh, yeah. supporting people on there. Of course, like, we didn't go through it ourselves just to gatekeep it. Right. You know, right. and we've all gone through those same, <laughs> same phases. So I think you're right. It's it's hard to find someone to, you know, to take your language acquisition a step further. You have to Im- fully immerse yourself and your mind. But in order to make that perspective shift, you also have to have people to talk to. That's what a language right. is for. Yeah, totally. There's nothing like, you know, talking to them when you're trying to learn or when you're learning yeah, and having a conversation because it's definitely not your textbook conversation and you'll learn that like I think like in English too we don't always talk in these complete like long sentences Mm -hmm. that you know probably have perfect grammar it's very real it's very conversational and it's very fast it's very fast and and you, you <laughs> cannot avoid it <laughs> part of that is your ear has to get ma like your mm-hmm. ear has to get used to hearing that yeah the one way to do that is to follow a whole appealing my or duolingo is a great place to practice find a friend There's a lot of them today. Ask for help. Ask for help. It's okay. You'd be surprised. Yeah, there's so many options out there. So if you are leaving, That was the Greens, Brad Watanabe talking with HPR music host Paige Okimura. The deadline to enter the band's song translation contest is this Saturday, February 18th. We'll have information on how to enter on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Life can sometimes seem like a succession of goals. Graduate from school, get a job, find love. But what if that's not enough? Purpose is an ancient concept. We, as a species, have been grappling with this concept forever. How cultivating a sense of purpose can help us weather life's storms. This week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7, following Living on Earth. 
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. As of February 13, Hawaiian Telecom has discontinued carrying HPR along with all other local radio stations. You can listen to HPR on hawaiipublicradio.org, our free HPR mobile app, your smart speaker, or on the radio. Please direct your comments to Hawaiian Telecom at time for your backyard quiz answer. Uh, we asked about a gizmo that changed the pineapple industry. It was created by a local inventor in response to a 1911 request from James Dole of Dole Pineapple. He was concerned about the lengthy time that it took to core, peel, juice, and slice pineapples by hand. The best that workers could do was 10 to 15 an hour, but that wasn't efficient enough to make the canned fruit affordable in mass quantities. The inventor's response was a machine that processed a staggering 50 a minute, enough to win a gold medal at the Panama Pacific Exposition in San Francisco in 1915. By 1925, that number jumped to 100 pineapples a minute, increasing exports from 300,000 cases a year in 1908 to over 12 million at its peak in 1934, forever changing the economy and, and uh, the face of Hawaii. The name of the inventor, Henry Ginaka, and the device was known as the Ginaka machine, which are the answers to today's backyard quiz. And congrats to our winner, Neil Chawla of Kahului. You got it right. If you have an idea for a quiz, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. On the next Science Friday, for centuries, the Chinese have used the lion's mane mushroom to promote memory. But now there is scientific evidence that it works. We'll present it. Plus how to channel floodwaters to be used in time of drought and the health effects of the Ohio train derailment. We'll get a local report all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning tomorrow afternoon at 1. Weather permitting, Maui cyclist Connor O'Brien is going the distance this Sunday to raise money for Imua Family Services. He will tackle a 200-mile trek around the Valley Isle, starting a long clockwise route south, west, north, and then east Maui. We talked to O'Brien about what motivates him to help this nonprofit group, which helps families with children. For me, it was really getting to know the folks at Amua Family Services through uh, helping them organize Pedal Amua, which is their annual um, uh, like 60-mile bike event that they do in December. Um, so I was put in touch with them as kind of the, the point person for Maui Sunriders here uh, as one of the supporters of the event. Um, so I got to know Marnie a little bit through that, and then on the day up, got to meet a lot of the rest of the team. And just getting to know them as individuals and seeing the energy and the passion that they had for what they were doing, which was great work for, for you know the families and kids on the island here. And then the way that they were working to bring people together around kind of that common cause, and then specifically for me anyway, had a part of that being cycling. My background is that I, I worked at a, a summer, like an outdoor summer adventure trip company for kids for four summers as a trip leader and then in the office where we worked really hard to motivate kids to challenge themselves and, and overcome things that were kind of beyond the scope of what they thought to be possible and then to see that same kind of those values in the Amua family uh, their team over there it was like oh I should try and get more involved with those folks so they got a good thing going on and the energy just felt right so as I was thinking about a big bike ride here it was like oh how do I bring in more community and kind of 
motivates other cyclists to get out and do kind of you know big things for a great reason. And I was like, well, the Move Family Services team seems awesome, so I should reach out and see if they're interested. And they were. <laughs> so here we are. So why 200 miles? <laughs> I've always been fascinated by just big outdoor adventure kind of things. And then when I found cycling, that became kind of the avenue in which to pursue those endeavors. And I've always been kind of thinking, since having lived on Maui all of last winter and then being here this winter, I've done the West Maui Loop that a lot of cyclists know, the East Maui Loop that, that cyclists know as well. And then, of course, the big climb up Haleakala, which is a big draw for cyclists really all over the world that come to the island to ride. In my head, I've done a couple of big 300-mile rides before, so I knew I could take on something of this scope. And then it was like, oh, I wonder if I could put together all of those big three rides on Maui into one and pull it off in a day. And the more I thought about it and looked at the logistics of it and kind of thought through different route options, it was like, you know, I really think this is possible. It's it's not going to be easy, but, but I think I can do it. And so that's how I kind of, through that process, landed on let's ride the entire perimeter of the island and then climb the volcano and see if we can do it in a day. So where are you going to start from? I will start in La Perouse and leave there between, uh, well, really honestly, as close to 1 a.m. as possible. And I'll have my sister and her boyfriend behind me in a car. Are, uh, with headlights on just as, as more lights for the first 40-ish miles or so up, up and around Napili over on the west side. And at that point, they'll probably turn back and then I'll be solo around the north side of the west loop um, and then straight across all the way due east toward Hana and then hit Hana, loop around the backside there and then kind of spiral up the volcano through Kula, hit Crater Road and then as we know it's, it's 22 more vertical mile <laughs> right from there and then yeah goal of get to the summit by sunset which this Sunday is at 6:25 p.m. <laughs> so I guess if we put it off and I buy myself a few more minutes of daylight anyway wow well I know that uh, you know we've all heard the alerts about the weather and yeah we've got to keep uh, safety in mind so talk about you know your planning process yeah, it's uh, it's a it's an interesting one. As I look ahead for the weather, it's it's you know, of course right. You, you plan this how many weeks and months in advance, and the the big weekend has the weather rolling in. But that's how it goes. And so for me, it, it's like if it's a, a light rain, it's actually kind of nice to have on a ride of this length just to keep the temperature low or lower. However, if it is dramatic, which it looks like it might be, and there's flash flood warnings and things like that, especially with the road on the backside of Hana and even the road to Hana out from Paia. Yeah, you're right. It just it just becomes unsafe, not just for me, but for others who are on the support team here, who I'm asking a lot of out in these places. So, yeah, you know, keep an eye out for the next couple of days. I think probably by midday Friday at the latest, I'll make a call one way or another. More and more likely looks like it will be postponed to the Sunday the 26th. Because I, I also think about like road closures, even if the, the bulk of the weather rolls in Friday, Saturday, uh, there still might be some issues out on the road on Sunday, and that just becomes unsafe for everybody involved. So you're right, safety first and foremost. So we'll see. There's still hope, but we have a backup plan in, just in case here. And you have some of the Imuwa Family Services uh, staffers that are volunteering, I guess, at the uh, like yeah. at the checkpoints or or. Uh, first aid stations. <laughs> That's right, yes. They have been unbelievably kind in putting themselves out there to, to help facilitate this, which gave me a heck of a lot of confidence going into all of this, because you, you can imagine planning something of this magnitude. It also involves a lot of reaching out to, to friends and family to be like, hey, could you help me out with, with this, that, or the other thing? And then, yeah, the Amua team was, was unbelievably selfless to put themselves out there and be like, whatever you need on the day of the ride, you let us know and we'll make it happen. Which only, you know, allowed me to then allocate some of my own time and energy into the, the fundraising piece of this. But yes, they will be out there at different checkpoints. I will meet the first checkpoint if the, all the timing holds up at about 5.30 a.m. by Baldwin Beach. I'm on my way east toward Hana. Uh, meet somebody out in Hana between 9 and 10 is the ETA out there. And then around the back side at Bully's Burgers. And that will be around noon, maybe 1230 or so. And then up at Skyline Haleakala, up on Crater Road before the ranch land all opens up. The next checkpoint is the visitor center at 7,000 feet. And then one little check about 8,500 feet at a pull-off up there before the big finish up at the summit. Um, it would be great. It, it, it sounds like all you Mua family staff will be coming through and be at the summit with me up there for the big finish, which is sweet. 
Yeah, that sounds really terrific. If you could talk about the fundraising aspect, because you've got what a GoFundMe mm-hmm. page, and what was your goal, and, and you know what's the plan? How can people help uh, help you move family yeah. services? <laughs> so, yeah, that piece, you know, I'll say that this is all brand new to me. I haven't done a fundraising campaign like this before, so I didn't really know what to expect. We launched this. It was like January sixteenth or seventeenth or something like that when I first put it out there with an initial goal of twenty five hundred dollars by February the ninth. This coming Sunday, um, it took us just two weeks to get to 2,500 bucks, which was uh, I was shocked by the the amount of support and encouragement I've I've uh, felt from those I've reached out to has been huge um, and driving me forward on this. Um, so after we hit 2,500 bucks, it was like, all right, let's push this to 3,500 and see if we can get that in the next two weeks. And then we hit that in just three more days, which was wild. And now working toward 4,000 before Sunday. And we are, last I looked, we are like $5 shy, or maybe maybe $20, it might be that much, um, shy of 4,000. So I have a GoFundMe page live online, but then also the easiest way to find that is probably just going to the Amua Family Services website, and they have that pretty front and center. We can read a little bit more about me and about the ride, um, and then a link to that that GoFundMe right there. Nice and easy. Well, you've got a big heart, and you know you're you're simply giving back to the the staff there at that nonprofit because I guess you really believe in in what they do, the good work they do in the community. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I've always loved working with kids and, and kind of uh, that's the, everything here, you know. And the more that we can inspire and motivate those kids to, to be the best version of themselves. Um, again, that's the background that I came from working in summer world. Um, and then to see them doing the similar but tangentially related thing here, um, energy that I knew, it was like, oh, these are these are good people to be working with on something great. Push this forward and get it done. Well, Connor O'Brien, yeah. Imua, <laughs> and I hope that weather uh, uh, is on your side, but in any event, if you have to put off for a week, um, more time to fundraise. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so we'll see if we can get to that 4,000 in the next couple days here, and then if we do end up pushing it off, maybe we bump that a little bit to see if we can get another couple hundred before next Sunday. Okay. Um, And same same process again. Fingers crossed (laughs) the weather holds for next Sunday if we have to, but if we get done, I'll do it. All right. Well, we're cheering you on, but thank you so much. <laughs> Much appreciated, one. All right, and stay safe. That was Connor O'Brien talking to us about a plan to bike 200 miles to raise money for Emua Family Services. There is a flood advisory starting today, and O'Brien says he will decide tomorrow or Saturday if he would hold off on his 200-mile ride until the following weekend because of the weather. Well, we're out of time now, but up tomorrow, join us for a call-in show where we talk about helping nonprofits. Rising inflation and a tough job market are threatening critical services. Do you work for a nonprofit? Been helped by a social service group recently? What's your experience? Share your story on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And want to listen back to something you heard? Find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or uh, anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.